0: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any technological device designed for listening, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial go get the best lesbian erotica of 2007 how about that that'll change your drive time or else you can get an audiobook called bears gay erotic stories which will keep you company as you hibernate through the winter and if you're not into that if you prefer something less risque what about the immortal life of henrietta Lacks by rebecca skloot or how about armageddon in retrospect by the late kurt vonnegut that one's narrated by rip torn is that a real name rip torn any one of these titles can be yours free of charge to download your free audiobook just go to audibletrial.com slash other people again that's audibletrial.com slash other people this is an unbelievable deal available right now these are books you can listen to them go and get them oh my god
1: you are not alone you have found other people
2: you and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake,
2: what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really
0: there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing just one person at just one time right. <laughs> right okay everybody here we go again this is it this is other people this is the program this is the situation today's guest is roxanne gay she's the author of a debut collection called iet and i know i'm probably mispronouncing it it's spelled a y i t i and it's like the uh, the official uh, indigenous word for haiti the island nation of haiti i believe that's correct that's the name of her book iet and it's a collection of fiction nonfiction, and poetry a veritable smorgasbord if you will and it's available now from artistically declined press so what else can i say about roxanne Uh, Well, she's been published in a ton of anthologies, too many to mention, and she teaches, and she's a college professor, a professor of English at Eastern Illinois University. She's the co-editor of Pank Magazine. She's the fiction editor at at Bluestem, and uh, she's also a regular contributor at HTML Giant. So uh, if you spend any time at all online in the world of independent literature... Uh, she's sort of ubiquitous. That's how I came to know of her, just from being online, reading online literature, and constantly seeing the name Roxanne Gay everywhere I went. You cannot swing a dead cat, ladies and gentlemen, in the indie-lit world online without running into her. Her presence can be felt everywhere. Uh, she's a very talented writer, very dedicated, very hardworking, has some trouble with insomnia, which I can relate to, and she and I are going to be having an in-depth, inappropriate conversation in just a moment. So what else? Uh, I just drank a kombucha tea just moments ago. It was berry flavored, and it tasted kind of weird. And uh, the reason I drank it is that I, I think I might be getting a cold. I have that fear, and so I drank this thing because I'm uh, I'm susceptible to those sorts of uh, you know, those sorts of things. I drank a kombucha tea, thinking that it might help me ward off this virus that I might have. So otherwise, uh, lately, what have I been thinking about? Uh, talent, luck. Uh, A little bit of critical assessment, you know, my ability to to assess things critically, art in particular, and how that changes and how little uh, I'm able to take uh, my own perspectives and, you know, strong opinions seriously, because I feel like it's just too fluid and it changes. And uh, I don't know, I'm not wired that way. And then otherwise, I've also been thinking about music and how music is kind of the ultimate art form, quickest to the vein, the art form that all other art forms sort of only wish they could be. I kind of believe that a lot of the time. So uh, I think what maybe started me on it was the fact that over the holidays, my wife and I watched uh, this documentary by Cameron Crowe. Uh, he directed it. And I think it's called Pearl Jam 20. And it's about the band Pearl Jam. And I was a fan of Pearl Jam in high school. And, you know, I had that album, the the 10 album, the high five one, where they're all like high fiving each other or whatever. And uh, anyway, my wife and I, we, we rent this movie on pay-per-view because we're Kind of sitting around over the holidays, and uh, we love documentaries. We'll basically watch any documentary, and uh, so we watched this thing kind of on a whim, and it made me love the band Pearl Jam like all over again. And I haven't like really loved them since I was like a teenager, and uh, it made me nostalgic. And I genuinely like the guys in the band. You know how they comported themselves, their overall take on things, the fact that they didn't take themselves you know themselves too seriously, but they take the music seriously, and. They're good to their fans and they're doing it for the right reasons. And they're going after Ticketmaster and, you know, and they're talented. They can really play. And, uh, you know, I don't like all of their songs or anything, but, you know, the truth is, when do you ever like every song by a band? It just doesn't happen. Just like it, you know, it's rare that you would ever like, you know, every single book by an author. You know, I suppose it's possible, but it's exceedingly rare. So, uh, I don't know. Watching the documentary, it reminded me of my youth. It called into question uh, my opinions, because, you know, it's sort of, you know, my fandom had sort of faded. I got to be honest. Uh, but, you know, that's sort of a function of age, maybe. Uh, but, it, you know, brought me back. And I was like, wow, these guys are really good, you know. And it also made me feel a little bit better about myself as a youth. I was like, you know, if I was 17 or 18 and cheering for these guys, uh, then I must have had decent instincts, you know. I was on the right track. These are the right kind of guys to root for. So, uh, you know, then from there, it's like luck and talent. And, uh, you know, luck in particular where, the, you know, I feel like there's a couple of kinds, maybe right place, right time luck. And then also like just raw genetic luck. And uh, so watching this documentary about Pearl Jam, uh, it, you know, it kind of gives you the details on this whole story, how the band came together. And I remembered bits and pieces of this, but I never really, you know, heard it told in detail. And, uh, you know, originally it was a band called Mother Love Bone. And then the lead singer, Andy Wood, of uh, you know, died of an overdose. So that band ended. And Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament and some other guys were sort of, you know, reeling and set free, uh, you know, in the worst possible way by the loss of this uh, lead singer. So Stone and Jeff, not sure what to do. They decided to start a new band after a while. They needed a singer. And they're, they're, you know, having trouble finding a good one. And then one day they get a cassette tape in the mail. This was back in like the early 90s, I suppose. Late 80s, early 90s. And they get this cassette tape in the mail from some guy named Eddie Vedder who's a surf bum living in San Diego. Doesn't even live in Seattle. He lives in San Diego. It's like working as like a security guard. And they pop this tape into the stereo and it's a demo. And it's Eddie Vedder singing like Eddie Vedder. Just beautifully. And uh, of course he flies up to Seattle and, you know, he's also like a great guy. You know, he's not like fucked up and uh, he's sort of effortlessly cool. And he doesn't have like the typical lead singer, Uh, monster ego he's not like a preening asshole Uh, at least I don't think he is you know it doesn't seem to be the way he is and uh, you know that's not to say he's not eccentric you know he is a bit of a weirdo and he's kind of a live wire emotionally but uh, so are the rest of the guys you know they they all sort they're all sort of you know weird in their own ways and so uh, the you know the point is that they essentially get along and uh, you know it's kind of this magical union they go into some basement in Seattle and they wind up cutting that album 10 in like a week they're just fucking around in this basement. They make this album, and uh, you know, of course, it goes on to become this huge thing. It explodes. The band explodes, and uh, I'm watching this, sitting there, thinking to myself, well, you know, like what the fuck? Uh, like this is what happens. Like Eddie Vedder just mails you a cassette tape. You're, you're you're just hanging around in Seattle trying to be a you know rock stars, and suddenly that you know suddenly this uh, lead singer guy shows up, and not only is he a good guy, but he can sing beautifully. And also, uh, he happens to be extremely good looking and charismatic with a voice that sort of screams virility. Uh, like Eddie Vedder can sing and he can make people pregnant. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there watching this with my wife and uh, just watching Eddie Vedder. Like a guy who looks like that and can sing like that, just naturally, just opens his mouth and that's what comes out. Oh, and uh, also, he's a surfer, he can surf. Are you fucking kidding me? And he chain smokes too. That's the other thing. He smokes constantly. He can sing. He can surf. And uh, he's a good athlete. He's like climbing around in the rafters, risking life and limb, uh, you know, at concerts back in the old days. And he always makes it, you know, and I'm thinking about myself. And like, not only would I never even think to try something like that in the first place, but even if I did, I would fall. No doubt. There'd be, I'd be a footnote. I'd be a story in a newspaper From 20 years ago. Like you know. Like uh, you know. Amateur rock star falls from rafters. But Eddie Vedder just has this like extreme confidence. This extreme physical confidence and presence. And he's like dangling above a crowd during a show. There's footage of this. It's like a hundred feet up. And people in the audience are like genuinely scared. And the band is scared. And he's like up there. uh, Like like he's on the monkey bars at the playground. And then he's like launching himself ten stories down into a mosh pit and people catch him somehow and like women are passing out and tearing at his clothes and then miraculously he kinda of gets fed back on stage and then he you know he picks up the mic and uh starts singing like perfectly, you know, perfect pitch right on cue. It's insane. It's amazing. And uh you know, then they're out on tour and he's like surfing in Thailand and it's just it's unbelievable the lives that these people have led. And, uh, you know, how did it happen? Eddie Vedder mailed a cassette tape. He took the initiative. He did that. He went up to Seattle. The timing was right. It worked out. And uh, it's absurd. Uh, He was born with it. Eddie, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, I want to know what it's like to be you for a day. You know that? And uh, the other thing, too, uh, they should make a movie about this. You know those, like, switched identity comedies like Big, the Tom Hanks movie, or uh, The Change-Up, or uh, Being John Malkovich? They should make one called Being Eddie Vedder where some just complete nerd, just some book nerd who's like desperately horny and lives in his parents' basement gets to be Eddie Vedder for like 36 hours. Like what would you do if you're like 19 and you just, you know, you have not been dealt a good hand and suddenly you get to be Eddie Vedder and you just take a ukulele or an acoustic guitar out into the streets. That's all you would need to do. Just start singing. So, uh, I don't want to belabor the point and, you know, I'm, it's, it's, uh, it's meant with some humor, but you know, you watch this, uh, this documentary and the reality is that the guy is just a rock God. That's the hand he was dealt. That's how the cards fell. And I'm not saying that his life has been all roses because it hasn't, uh, he's a human being, but, uh, at the same time, he must have moments where he's just like looking at himself in the mirror, uh, thinking to himself, <laughs> this is fantastic, uh, and, and it makes me wonder when it comes to life and art, you know, some people, uh, just have it, they have that luck, they are blessed. They have, you know, Pearl jam luck. And, uh, you know, the, the and the worst part about it and, and the best part about it is that you watch this movie and you're watching the band and then you're watching any Vedder, and you're seeing, you know, that he has all these, da- uh, you know, all these talents and, and it should make you hate him. But the thing is, is, is that he's such a good guy, uh, on camera, at least that you wind up really, really liking him. You know, like I found myself like admiring him. I felt he had an energy and a glow uh, and a charisma about him. (laughs) And, uh, like my wife and I were both that way. We were just like looking at each other. Like I want to go live in a teepee with this guy. You know, I want to follow him somewhere. I want him to teach me things. So Eddie, uh, if you're listening, I want to hang out. Uh, I want you to be my mentor and I want us to be, uh, friends. I want you to teach me how to play the ukulele. Uh, Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And then, okay, so let's, I mean, not to like hammer this too hard, but like this is, Mm -hmm. like, do you know how like when you're up at three in the morning... It's like, it's like, if yeah. I, if I snap awake at like three thirty in the morning or four in the morning and it's dark out, like, why can't I just have like positive thoughts? Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I can have positive thoughts during the day. I can, or, or I can let like a negative thought pass, but there's something about that hour of the night that like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like the entire world just seems so heavy to me. And like, it's just a, uh, it's like, it's a scary time of night for some reason.
2: It very much is it's kind of like the demon hour you know you start to get possessed <laughs> yeah. by all kinds of dark thoughts and depressing thoughts, and I really start to contemplate my existence at three in the morning and and then I find that I don't like what I'm contemplating and yeah, at three in the morning it's a rough time it is
0: now do you ever take drugs like do you are you like an ambient person or do anything like that? <laughs>
2: No, I have a weird thing that I get from my mother, so I'm going to blame her, where I'm paranoid of pharmaceuticals, which is not to say I don't take them, but I'm paranoid about them. (laughs) And also, they don't really work for me. So what I do um, is I generally try to um, take uh, Benadryl when I'm really desperate. Like, if it's been like five or six days and I cannot handle it anymore, Uh I'll take a Benadryl. But the problem with Benadryl is that the next day you're really drowsy and just you drag. So you have to think about what's worse, not sleeping or feeling shit the next day. And so it's a real struggle. And then sometimes I'll take like melatonin or Alteril, which are also hippie um, choices, and they don't really work. They don't. Okay, because I, I take know.
0: melatonin every night. Like I've, I just have it's – like, it's, it's like a placebo for me. Like I just think like mm-hmm. – oh. If I take this thing, it's gonna, you know, I don't even know what it does, but I, I feel like, you know, it's helping me so far. Like the last like couple of months, I haven't had a bad spell.
2: Oh, good, very good. Yeah, um, a friend turned me on to Altaril a few months ago, and it's it's worked, but it, I've started building up some sort of immunity to it. So um, that's very distressing.
0: Well, then how then how and, does this, how does this affect your writing? You know, like if you're. You know, cause that, that's another thing that's stressful. It's like, Oh shit, my work, like I'm going to be, I'm going to be terrible at writing cause I'm going to be sleepless. Like, do you, do you think that it has, is there any way to like flip this around and say that it has a positive impact because, you know, it creates some sort of altered mental state or, you know, it seems like you have enough energy, energy to get stuff done. I mean,
2: yeah, I do. Um, I have been graced with the gift of being able to write pretty much under any circumstance. Um, So it doesn't necessarily affect my writing, though. Sometimes I'll wake up and look at what I wrote the night before, and I'll love it. (laughs) And I mean, that's delusion, of course. And I'll think, oh, my God, like, who did that? Like, I feel like the – not the muse, because that's the worst, and so just gross. It's just something. Like, I don't even know where it comes from. Like, I just feel like maybe I sleep right. (laughs) Um, So it doesn't necessarily affect my writing poorly though I think how I judge the writing might be affected because I'm so tired that it looks great and it probably isn't.
0: Okay. So when's the last time you had like an eight hour night of sleep? Can you even remember? Is it has there been, do you have like, yes.
2: this weekend because oh. I did a reading in champagne and I drank
1: nice. and I drank
2: and I drank and I hadn't been, um, hadn't slept all week. And so by the time I got home, <laughs> I was just done and I, I was so excited because the next day I woke up at like 2 in the afternoon, and I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> I, I kind of pissed on myself. Okay, it was so, well, so we've great
0: we've got the solution then. You just have to get really drunk. Done.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, there's nothing like damaging your liver for some sleep. That's right. Small you, sacrifice.
0: You've you got a hangover, but at least you had eight hours of sleep consecutively.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And worth every.
0: So anyway, like you've now got a, you've got a book out, you've, you've published a bunch of anthologies and you've published mm-hmm. all over the web and now you've got your first collection out and, you know, excuse me if I screw up the pronunciation, but it's A-E-T? IET? IET. IT, Okay. So tell me like just briefly a little bit about it.
2: IT is is a collection of writing I did. A lot of it's some of my older writing and it's all about the Haitian diaspora experience in some form or fashion
0: Okay, so wait, I, well, just, just translate, the Haitian diaspora experience.
2: Yes. Well, what it means to be Haitian um, anywhere in the, in the world, but mostly here in the United States and also in Haiti itself. And so I was just trying to find ways to talk about it, to write about it, because my parents are Haitian, and I'm a first-generation American. Okay. And I was always raised with this identity, of being Haitian, we were always reminded that we were Haitian, no matter where we lived in the world. We were Haitian, and so that was a really key part of my upbringing. And where, as an adult, you, where were
0: you raised? Where were you raised?
2: I grew up all over the country. I spent a lot of time in Nebraska. I was born in Nebraska, and because
0: um, is, is, is there a large a large Haitian uh, immigrant population there, or is that were you sort of a, yeah. a, an, an outlier?
2: I was definitely an outlier. We were the only Black family in our neighborhood. Um, there was a small Haitian community, and we spent the weekends—every Saturday, not every Saturday, but many Saturdays—would be spent at the um, sort of patriarch of the community's house. But I mean, we're talking like six families, maybe, Whoa. in the whole city. So it was very tiny. It was very,
0: very tiny. So, I mean, so where in Nebraska? Omaha. So you're in Omaha, okay? Because I'm, you know, yeah. I, I grew up in Indiana. I can kind of relate. I mean, it was just uh, yeah. not much to it.
2: Nope. But I, I've um, gained some nostalgia for Nebraska now that I've lived. I've lived all over the country. I've lived on the East Coast. I've lived in Arizona. I've lived north. I've lived in Vermont, uh, New Hampshire.
0: What What are you moving around for? You like? Are you you know like just jobs and just got I walked. get around
2: you get around <laughs> no uh, yes I do um, my dad was an engineer and we went wherever the project was and then I went to boarding school for high school and then I went to um, college and to another college then another college and then another college and so so okay, and then so of course wh- I didn't wh- where, off.
0: where'd you go to boarding school
2: uh, a school called Exeter
0: oh you went to Exeter I did. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's start here. That's fascinating. Like where, like, what was that like? Because that's like one of the, uh, the elite high schools in the country, right?
2: Yes, it is. Um, Exeter was, uh, academically, Exeter was fantastic. I definitely learned a lot. It was way harder than college. Um, it was very interesting Exeter is a very complicated school. It has taken a long time for me to be able to even talk about Exeter without saying, I hate that place. (laughs) (laughs) But um, when I was there, I was one of uh, 48 black students. And all the white students assumed that if you were black, you were a scholarship student. And the black students knew you weren't a scholarship, knew I wasn't a scholarship student. And so they couldn't make sense of me. And I was ignorant of the world. And I was just... Oh, it was tragic. And so I really didn't fit in anywhere. And yeah, so we,
0: we, we, did, you, did you, I mean, the other students and your relation, you know, your relationships with other students when you got there, uh, yeah. you, could fe- you could feel like, I mean, was it, a, I feel like it would be a place where everybody's sort of really class conscious and stuff like that. I mean, especially it's, so.
2: Yes and no. I mean, it's not really that everyone's class conscious because everyone there is filthy rich. So there's not a lot to be, well, not everyone. There's certainly gradations of sort of the 1%, um, like the 1% and the 0.05%, um, but the people that were class conscious were the people who were the students that were there on scholarship, and um There were students like me who weren't on scholarship, but my parents were definitely, I mean, they would say upper-middle class, but they weren't like, you know, I went to school with Heinz and all these other kids with fancy last names. And, like, for them, they were never conscious of class because everyone around them, was exactly like them,
0: right? Um, See, I'm we're extraordinarily wealthy. Like it's always writers who are conscious of that stuff, you know?
2: Like, yeah,
0: I feel it. I feel it so intensely, like you know, like and I try not to let it get to me. You know, you kind of work your way through mm-hmm. it, but I just I have a radar for that. It's just it's difficult not to be cognizant of it when you're not of that world.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I think the people there in general do not have to be um, conscious of class, and so. For if you're not part of sort of that atmosphere, like you know, if it's one tenth of the population there, you're conscious. But for everyone else, they just sort of led, we went through life doing their thing.
0: So, do you wear a uniform at that school? I mean, no, no.
2: there was a dress code, okay, but no uniform.
0: So, what do you What's the dress code you're like wearing? You have to wear like certain colors like or something?
2: Back then. <laughs> no, um, I, the dress code back then was that you had to wear slacks sure. or skirts. Uh and men had to wear a blazer and a tie, and they still do. Um, It was way better to be a woman in terms of the dress codes. Uh, I wore it once in a while. A skirt was awkward, and mostly just slacks and certain kinds of slacks. You couldn't wear sneakers, and it would change every year. But for the most part, it was just like a business casual. Don't come to class looking crazy.
0: Right, right. And then you're you're living in dorms with other students?
2: Yes, my first two years I lived in – Dorms, and then my parents, my dad took a job in Boston, and so they moved closer, and I lived at home for the last two years.
0: Oh, okay, okay. So, like, what was the dorm situation like? Did they, like, if there's like a, if, you know, are there is there like a Heinz living in a dorm room with a scholarship student, or did, was it like separate, or was, how did that work?
2: Um, you're given roommates your freshman year, and um, you can try and get a single after that. I had a single my did I have a single myself for you I can't even remember who my roommate was anymore. I had a roommate my freshman year, and I may or may not have had my roommate my second year i'm thirty seven I can't remember
0: yeah, I can't remember anything either i'm like i'm i'm thirty i thirty six going on thirty seven and i'm I've already like got dementia I think yeah you know, it's, it's crazy
2: yeah and like it's just way too old, like way too long ago um I live
0: in Dunbar. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, yeah. and so you're there and, uh, just to rewind a bit, cause I want to make sure I ask yeah. this before I forget, but like your parents mm-hmm. came to the, this country from Haiti, like they were born in Haiti yeah. and came over. Uh, what, yeah. p- what precipitated that? Like, how did they come over?
2: um, they, you know, they haven't really ever really talked a lot about why they came over, but they came over for the same reasons that everyone comes to the United States: opportunity, certainly. Uh-huh. Um, just they they came over separately. They met here in the United States. My father went to Montreal first, and then he moved to New York. And my parents met at a wedding in New York. Okay. In the seventies.
0: But I mean, as an engineer, he came. I mean, did he get? Was he educated in Montreal or was he educated in the states? Well,
2: in the states, he went to CCNY.
0: Okay. All right, and then they met, yeah. and they had you, and then
2: mm-hmm.
0: the rest. And of then, you,
2: like, your life was amazing. Yeah.
0: And then he, <laughs> he started. He started engineering, and that was the end of it. I mean, things just kind of yes. took off. Uh, yeah,
2: he worked for the same company for thirty years.
0: Oh wow. Okay. And so, uh, what happens when you leave Exeter? You know, you're there. It's sort of miserable, correct? I mean, I yes. I mean, you yes. Know, on a, I mean on a, it was on a scale of ten. Was it like a five experience or?
2: Oh gosh, no. I would put it more at like a two <laughs> two point five <laughs> two, maybe I had a lot going on in high school though so I mean it's not really I mean there was it was just like everyone I had a lot going on so part of it was the school but part of it was just I had a lot going on
0: like what like and what? then I went to college like what were you like were you like I mean were you like a particularly angsty kid were you doing a lot of drugs or what was the I mean boarding school kids always no, do a lot I, of drugs right
2: they do they do but I was not doing a lot of drugs I was very much a social outcast. I was extraordinarily awkward and nerdy. I had some personal issues I was dealing with. I was a mess, and it just just it doesn't matter where I went to high school. High school was gonna suck. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't blame the school as much as I blame just life. You get, know, that was did okay. you get
0: did you get good grades?
2: Yeah, I did. I did. You did.
0: Okay. So, but you were and you were bookish. Like, were you reading back then, or did that yeah. come later?
2: <laughs> no, I've been reading and writing as long as I can remember. I've always been extraordinarily nerdy
0: okay now and, and as far as like your creative impulses go and your uh, you know you're bent towards books is that something that you get from one of your folks I mean do you, can you trace it
2: mm, I don't know I mean my parents both enjoy reading they've always read and encouraged us to read they were very much about education when I was growing up we weren't allowed to watch television my mom gave us homework in addition to the homework we got in school Jesus. We were
0: so she was a, she was a tiger it. mom
2: she was very much a tiger mom but without some of the psychosis i mean she was a great mom okay and um is that what i should
0: do as a parent like should i i mean because we have a yeah, t- totally t- to get rid of the television totally.
2: absolutely no i mean yes and no it, looking back i realized they were on to something i read constantly i read everything i read way above my age level um And I'm the better for it. But at the same time, when I went to the playground and everyone was talking about cool things, I was just...
0: um, Yeah, you didn't know what to say. Everyone's talking about MTV and stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just was not able to sort of participate. And it was extremely uncomfortable because I wanted to participate. And I was just this complete and total loser. So it was terrible. So I would I think it's about balance. We were given uh, what was it like an hour a week of pr- approved television. So
0: So and what about, um, what about sugar cereals and stuff like that? Was it all just like granola? Or,
2: oh no. no. No, sugar cereals. We allowed allowed cornflakes, Cheerios or Raisin Bran. <laughs> and once in a great while, once in a great while when we were good, we got not when we were good, but like when she wanted to treat us, we would get Honeycomb.
0: All right, so then, what happens when you uh, when you go away to like school and stuff? Did you just go nuts and just like Captain Crunch and just go? You know, were you watching TV like uh, six hours a day? Or wait, can you repeat your question? No, I was just saying. I first you, part. Uh, when you went away to school, did you? I mean, did you oh. go nuts?
2: I went crazy. <laughs> I went absolutely crazy. I just, oh, it was awkward. Just fruit like,
0: loops. Just like a just like a giant. I can just see. Yeah,
2: I lost i lost my ever loving mind. I watched <laughs> Beverly Hills 90210 religiously. I watched Days of Our Lives, all my children. See, like
0: Okay, let me let me if it was
2: happening in the TV room? I was there.
0: Okay, so let me stop you for a second cuz just to give you like you had this sort of like, you know, uh you know, bookish youth where you were reading constantly and you had an hour of approved television a week. Uh to give you like a contrast with my life and this might tell you something about where you know why my brain is where my brain is at. Uh, I grew up in a household where we taped, like there was a VHS video recorder or whatever in our living room. And my sister, my older sister was a, a soap opera nut and she would tape all my children, days of our lives, Santa Barbara and general hospital every day. And I grew up watching those. Like those are some of the most like indelible narratives of my childhood. Like I remember all the characters. I remember the actors names who played, the characters in some, you know, in some instances on days of our lives, the whole like Bo and Hope thing and Roman and Stefano D'Amara, all that shit, you know, like it was just like, it was completely uh, part of my youth. And uh, I look back on that and I'm like, what the hell was going on? I was like, <laughs> no child should be watching four hours of soap operas every day. But apparently that's what was you know.
2: happening. It's funny you say that though, because the reason my mom decided to stop allowing us to watch television is because one day when I was really young, I was asked, um, she was doing something and I walked into the room and I asked her where Victor and Nikki were or something like that. And they were characters on her soap opera. You know,
0: Victor, she Car- Victor, K- Victor
2: I've not Victor, Victor Newman on, um, uh, the pretty one, Young and the Restless.
0: Oh, see, I didn't watch yes. that one. Okay. I was, I was thinking of a different one, different Victor.
2: Yes. It was Victor Newman and, um, she freaked out because she didn't think that I was absorbing the television. She thought she just sort of had it on and I wasn't paying attention, but I guess I was. And so, um, yes,
0: it's all my fault. See, I have a, I have a 15 month old daughter now and she's starting to talk and like, she can repeat everything we say and, um, not everything, but you know, a lot of stuff and it happens fast. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm like, it really does. I w really i have been so unguarded about how, you know, what I say in front of her, uh, you know, cause when they're an infant, you can just kind of talk and it's getting to the point where you start to have to filter yourself. And I'm really, Absolutely. I'm really bad at filtering myself. <laughs> it's not my, <laughs> it's not my strong suit. So, you know, it's just, yeah. it's going to get tricky. You know, you want to make sure that you're being responsible, but it sounds like your parents definitely did a good job. I mean, they, they, I think it's always good when, you know, parents make their kids read and take the turn the T V off and stuff like that. I mean, it can't be bad.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I there's no yeah, I, I hated it as a child and I would just throw tantrums and yeah, you know, I felt like, oh, why are you oppressing me? But I, I, I absolutely understand now what what the thinking there was. It it makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, it wasn't like it wasn't like they were trying to to do you any harm. They were trying to help. And no, it sounds like. And you, I mean, you had like, I mean, a pretty happy upbringing then. Like your your family sounds like it was pretty together and and so on. Correct? I mean, and did you have siblings? Yeah,
2: um, I have two brothers, two younger brothers.
0: So you're the oldest. I am the eldest. All right. So they're looking to you for leadership.
2: <laughs> you could say that.
0: Those poor bastards. <laughs> yeah.
2: Good luck. I'm the wild child, so I don't know how much leadership they're getting from me, but right. yes.
0: So, okay. So did you have like a big, did you have like a big rebellious, like flame out in high school or college? I mean, did you, give me some kind of story.
2: Um, sure. I, I did have a huge flame out in college. <laughs>
0: good,
2: good. Of course. Let's get to yeah, that. Yeah, it was awesome.
0: Right. <laughs> So where'd you go to college? First of all, it sounds like you went to lots of colleges. Is this like advanced degree type thing or did you, uh, did you bounce around?
2: I both, I went to, <laughs> I went to college, I went to Yale and, um, I hated it because there were like 45 people from my high school there.
0: And so really that, that many kids from Exeter get, get funneled over to Yale. Are, like, do you think that they're, yeah. is there, is there, is it legacy stuff or is it, are these students like just truly deserving? They test out and they, they just deserve to be there.
2: Um, I think it's both. Yeah. I think it's both.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, skull yeah, and bones?
0: Just, were you in skull and bones or is that just guys?
2: No, that's just guys okay. and white people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's no black, there's no black guys in skull and bones.
2: I don't know. I'm sure there, there's at least one token now. I mean, certainly
0: <laughs> it is 2011. I want to interview that guy.
2: Yeah, Don soto. I would love to sit down and have a conversation <laughs> with him. Like, how many racist jokes have you heard uh, in your time? And do they call you boy? So uh, that would be fascinating.
0: So, Yale, you hated it. You just yeah, felt like it was I like did. A, you felt like it was like a repeat of high school.
2: I did. Um it was and also I was a theater geek. It was just terrible in every way. I was a theater geek and so I spent all my time in the dramatic and I worked on shows and did great stuff, but I never really did much with classes. I changed my major three times. I went from pre med to architecture to English, <laughs> <Jesus Christ. laughs> and then I.
0: So, what you yeah, wanted? You wanted to be a doctor? Like, what kind of doctor were you thinking?
2: I hadn't really formulated the kind of doctor I wanted to be. My parents were like, "Oh, become a doctor," and I mean they they wanted me to become a professional and doctor seemed good. And so I, I never really articulated what doctor meant beyond doctor. <laughs> so right, right. I took a terrible biology class my freshman year and it was the kind of class where on the first day, the teacher says, this is a class to weed out those of you who think you want to be a doctor to, from those of you who can become a doctor. <laughs> and sometimes it's to say I was
0: weeded out. Oh God, I would have been crushed. <laughs> I would have been just crushed like a bug and, uh, just like, you know, not to get too sophomoric, but like when I think about mm-hmm. doctors and medicine, you know, I, I, I have actually a lot of thoughts about this, but like one thought in particular, which might not be that original, is uh, <laughs> do you ever like think about people who go through all the rigors of medical school, like pre med, medical school, all the hoops you have to jump through, and uh, at the end of it, they become like a proctologist or like a urologist or something? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do you wander? A podiatrist. To- or, yeah, like you're, you're dealing with people's feet all day long. It's just like, How do you get to that point? Like, I'm thinking of, you know, if I'm going to be a doctor, I don't know what I mean. I'm so far from that that I don't even know what I would do, but I don't think I would be a proctologist. I'm just guessing.
2: I'm guessing I wouldn't either. I think I probably would have become a general surgeon or a physician. Like a pediatrician or or something, you know? No, not a pediatrician, no. No, I I I would worry, not because I love kids, but because I wouldn't want to have a child's life in my hands necessarily. That seems like a lot of stress. Yeah. Which is why I'm not a doctor. Right. That just didn't work out. Yeah. Well, it just so, wasn't, it
0: wasn't your yeah. thing. You can't, you know, you had other inclinations.
2: I did. I so,
0: did. So, so, so you went from that to like architecture. Yes. But you say, but you start to, you're starting to move in the direction of where you ultimately wound up. Cause I think that there are, I mean, architecture obviously has an artistic component and, yes. you know, there are, I think there's like a, I always, I used to tell this story when I was teaching of, uh, you know, Arundhati Roy. She was trained as an architect. There are there are some several writers actually that have architectural backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So, there are certain things you learn as an architect that I think are applicable to writing.
2: Absolutely, I thought it would be fun to become an architect, and it, yeah, I thought it would be fun, and I loved thinking up ideas for buildings. But then one day a professor said, this building would never stand up. <laughs> but that wasn't a concern for me. Oh, I wasn't yeah. so much concerned with how it happened. I'm like, I just figured that's what engineers were for.
0: Right. It looks pretty. <laughs> just let me Come make on. an
2: idea. <laughs> yes. And so architecture, I mean, I loved it. But I was and i had great ideas but i would i would have been a terrible architect
1: because okay. i
2: wanted to immediately like make a fancy building and become famous like gary or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> it
0: was I, delusional how does that even happen i feel like most architects <laughs> i feel like most architects i mean i know a couple and it's it's not actually that glamorous and it's uh it doesn't pay no. it doesn't pay a lot either like it's not a you know it's not easy it's not no profession no. is easy but that's like I always pictured it to be a little bit more glamorous or whatever because, you know, the architects that you hear about are the ones who are, like, designing, like, museums and stuff. Or
2: Absolutely. Most architects, like, spend their lives designing staircases and windows and hallways and hope for the chance to work on a great building like, you know, the Gary Building in Los Angeles. And then there are the rest of us, which yeah, is, yeah. you know, it wasn't for me.
0: Let's see what. So what happened after that? Then, then you went to English, and you were still at Yale, or when, like when did you leave Yale? Then
2: I went to English. I left Yale after two and a half years. I um, kind of cracked up, and so I went on a road trip, sort of. Okay, went, so wait,
0: like you just kind of—I mean, legitimately cracked up, or you just kind of burnt out?
2: Yeah, I cracked up, and I went. Um, I met this guy. This was back in the early days of the internet, and I had met this guy in a chat room and
0: a di- like on I, dial up
2: <laughs> yes I, I had a 2400 bad modem it oh, was very fancy
0: oh my god and i was
2: on my apple what was it lc2 or yeah. lc what? yeah it was very fancy computing and very scintillating conversations, and he was like, "Oh, I'm going to fly you out to San Francisco, and we're going to go to this party, and then you can come live with me in Arizona." So I did.
0: <laughs> Holy shit! Now, were you were you depressed? I mean, I don't want to ask two personal questions or whatever, but just to like try to wrap my head around this—like, was it just like a depression-fueled thing, or you know, like how do you? You define- could say that. Yeah, just- it
2: was mostly. Yeah, I was just I was dealing with a lot, and I just had no sort of coping mechanism for it and so what was it just my, like the stress of,
0: the stresses of school and stuff
2: mostly yeah i know it wasn't really school it was just stuff from my it was just stuff and i just didn't know what to do and i told my parents i needed a break and they didn't really understand because i couldn't explain to them why i needed a break i just was like oh i need to take some time off from college and they worried that if i took time off i wouldn't finish which totally makes sense because it took a long time for me to pull it together to go back. And then, um, yeah, I, I parent, parents
0: are always worried. you like, if you take a break, you're not going to go back, you know? And I, exactly. I would have totally, I needed a gap year so bad. Just me personally, I was the perfect candidate for a gap year and, uh, I didn't take one, you know? I, yeah. I, I really get, needed it. Hindsight's 2020, 20, but, um, Anyway, so this happened and you were dealing with stuff Mm -hmm. and it was just like emotional stuff.
2: Yeah, I just, I mean, it's like, I'm not being purposely vague. I just, it's hard to explain. I was just dealing with a lot. I had been through some really bad things in high school and in junior high and I had never really dealt with any of them. And so it kind of just all exploded in my face after my sophomore year. I was going to summer school that summer and I was living in an apartment off campus and I was just, miserable and I really didn't want to go back to school in the fall and it was like the beginning of August and I had like three weeks before the semester started and I just did not want to go back to school and I called my parents and asked them if I could take the year off because I was still at that point where I was like asking for permission and things and they said no and it wasn't a mean no it was just a what are you talking about finish your degree and I couldn't so I just disappeared
0: So were you you like, were you, do you think you were like burnt out on academia? I mean, that's kind of how I felt anyway. Like I remember being like, like, was it a cumulative thing or all the, the bullshit that you dealt with, you know, as a kid or whatever, just kind of built up. And then you were doing all this schoolwork and it sounds like you were working pretty hard. And then finally you just were like, I'm tired. Was that it?
2: I was tired. That was part of it. Yeah, definitely. I just needed a break. I needed to not, I just needed a break. I needed to be somewhere else. I wasn't, necessarily thrilled with the university i mean the education was fine i just my heart wasn't in it and my head wasn't in it and i wanted to take a break and when they wouldn't give me a break i guess i sort of adult ran away There you <laughs> It sounds so cheesy 20 years later but so at the time guy? it how, made sense
0: how old was this guy was he like an older guy
2: yeah he was 44
0: oh boy and so you fly yeah you fly across the country to san francisco Mm-hmm. Have you and you have you seen him? You've seen his picture online, is that correct? Or
2: no, I have I didn't see his picture. I knew nothing about him, <laughs> and I mean not nothing. I mean I knew his name. I knew what he did for a living. I knew where he lived. You, we talked you, all the time.
0: Did you background check him? Like, were you doing any kind of? Can you you, know. Could you Google at that point? I not know if you could
2: No, this was way pre-Google. I yeah. mean, this was sort of a hope you don't run into a serial killer time. <laughs> I, like when I look back on it I just think gosh, there is an angel above you and yeah. that angel likes you a lot. Okay, so so, so it so, was adventure.
0: Okay, so take us to the airport in San Francisco. You get off that plane and he's waiting for you at the gate. Like you could wait for people at the gate back then, correct? Yeah, you could. So you could. So so you come off the you come off the plane and you're thinking yeah. to, and you're thinking to yourself what?
2: Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was he good looking? What, what was it? Did he, did he live up to his He
2: experience? was, uh, how, how do I say this? He was average looking. He was not ugly. Okay. He was, but he wasn't Brad Pitt. Was he creepy? Uh, <laughs>
0: no. No? <laughs> no. Com- no comment? God. okay, I don't know you know it' just it's 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 a pretty big leap to like fly across the country, and go <laughs> yeah, there. I know, okay, so how long did this last? I mean was this like something that you figured out fairly quickly, or did you actually move in with him in Arizona and uh, attempt oh
2: no, I moved in with him oh you yeah
0: did? okay, for how so, long, yeah. for how long was this like a year or what?
2: No, I lived with him for about i don't know half a year,
0: okay, give or take, all right. Well, that's like that's a gap. He was year. nice.
2: That's a gap. He year. was a very yeah, it was very much a gap year, and I have to say, he was extraordinarily nice. And it
0: was, it was your study abroad? He, yes. <laughs> oh
2: yeah.
0: Your semester. Your he semester just, was at great. C, that was your semester at sea.
2: It was very much my semester at sea. Man aboard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. But he was extraordinarily nice. He could have been a total creeper. And a, I mean, I guess he kind of was a creeper, but he was very kind to me. He took me in because I, I was hiding. I mean, and he just was really great to me. He really was.
0: Okay. And so then your parents were aware of this or were they, were you just like kind of?
2: No, they weren't aware. Um, they weren't aware, but they did track me down eventually. And um,
0: so you basically, ran, you you ran away. You didn't even tell them where you were going.
2: No, I didn't. I just, yeah, I did not tell them where I was going.
0: Holy shit. So they must have been freaked out.
2: Yes. I I don't have many regrets in my life, but that was, that is certainly one of them. When I think now about what I was doing, I just thought, hold on. Yeah, I just think, oh, what was I thinking? That was just terrible.
0: And of course, like my Um, my mind is flashing forward, and like I'm seeing my like you know 19 year old daughter flying across the country. (laughs) Yeah, good time. I just had like a full heart murmur, just like you know, (laughs) Uh, yes.
2: But eventually, we reconnected, and uh, that was good too, because that wasn't them at all. They're
0: great. So Well right. And you know like I think every like, cuz I look back on my youth and uh I did some pretty crazy stuff when I was 19. I just think it's part of growing up. I mean you, you, you know, it is. You transition like and this is the thing with me. Like everyone always says junior high is like the worst part of life and it's like the hardest uh-huh. years. I think like I think I peaked in 8th grade. I don't think I've ever been higher. <laughs> That was the, the high-water mark of my life. <laughs> oh, I did not peak an eggs. Oh, God, I did not peak an eggs. Because in and you, you want to know what it was? I think I was just like – I had like kind of a, a goofy, sophomoric sense of humor, and I was still kind of a boy, but I, I wasn't quite mm-hmm. – I don't know what it was. I just had a lot of fun. I remember having a lot of fun that year, and – uh and everything's been kind of downhill ever since. <laughs> no, that's a shame. My uh, God, that's I'm, a long downhill. I'm kidding. I, you know, I kid, but like I just I, – the point is that I don't think that junior high was all that bad. I think that when I look at like when I was 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, and like those years, those years to me seem more intense by far. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I, that's mm-hmm. just, or maybe that's just the way I remember it, you know, but it, it's definitely seemed like – you know, just that freshman and sophomore year of college where that was one of the more, you know, I had a ball, I had a lot of fun, but it was also, uh, one of the more intense times in my life. And like my friends and I joke about it and we were like, I guess that was our Vietnam. And I, you know, I might've even <laughs> mentioned that on this show before, but like, that's kind of our joke is that, you know, you get to that age and, you know, you think about, you know, young men and young women, I guess, going off to war, um, it's it's almost like it, it's the same impulse that drives everybody, regardless of what you do at that age. You, it's like a self defining thing, or um, you want your life to be intense. You want the stakes to be raised, and you want to be doing something big. Does that make any sense? Uh-huh. Does that relate to how yeah. you, how you felt when you decided to take off and run away? You know,
2: absolutely. I mean, I just I yes yes
0: yes okay
2: yes. <laughs> so like, I needed something different. I needed. I, I needed to explode, and I needed to do it, I guess, in Arizona. for you,
0: know. yeah, where, where in Arizona were you? Like in Phoenix? Is that right? Like Tempe? See,
2: I was in a, a suburb of Phoenix. I started. I, he lived in Scottsdale, and I worked in Phoenix, and then I.
0: Um, it's an it's an odd town, you know. Like, like it's a
2: very odd town. And then I moved to Mesa.
0: Wait, I'm sorry. You just broke up, you just broke you know how. You, you, where did where did you move oh. to after after Phoenix?
2: Mesa, which is the next. It's in the same area.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, how long were you in Arizona for? And then, like, what happened next? Like, did you go? I, I mean, you went back to school, obviously. I
2: did. I went to Arizona for about a year, and then I moved for two weeks to Minnesota. For I won't even get into it. And then oh, I wait, 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 called wait.
0: wait just was it another guy? Can I at least ask that? <laughs>
2: No, it wasn't it okay, wasn't okay,
0: okay,
2: <laughs> and then I called my parents and I was like, "Okay, I'm ready to come home." I mean, it wasn't that flippant, but um, my parents sent me a plane ticket, and I went home and I lived with them for a few months, and then I went to um I moved to an apartment in Lincoln, Nebraska, which was about forty five minutes away, which was just the right distance. I went home for dinner every night, so it wasn't really you know, I just had a home away from home, yeah. And I went back to school and I went to Norwich University. I went to a program that was part of Norwich University in Vermont. And so I would do um, low residency in Montpelier. So I would go there for two weeks and then come back for two months and then go there for two weeks. And I finished my undergraduate degree and then I got my master's degree and then I got my Ph.D.
0: Jesus. So where did and you got it all there?
2: No, no, I got my master's degree at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. Okay. And then I got my PhD at Michigan Tech in Houghton,
0: Michigan. Wow. So you've been all over the place. What was, uh, I have. you mentioned, uh, Montpellier. Is that how you pronounce it? Montpellier?
2: Montpellier. That's how Americans pronounce it. Yes.
0: Yeah, but it's Montpellier, is the French yes okay but i mean how was that like i've never been to vermont or i think i've driven through vermont a little bit but like i've never really spent much time there is it was it pretty idyllic or was it like what was that like
2: yes definitely i think vermont is god's country i loved it i I call it you know they call it the northern kingdom up there and rightly so it's stunning it's just stunning in every way
0: and the people seem people seem like they're pretty you know it seems like one of the states where there's like a an intelligent population or something like that? Very
2: much so. They're very independent-minded. They're very intelligent. They're very aware for the most part. I mean, there are exceptions everywhere, but I enjoy the people of Vermont and have always had good experiences there.
0: Okay. And so uh, educationally, just to kind of continue the track, like you got your master's in?
2: Uh, Creative writing. My master's is in English with a concentration in creative writing.
0: Okay. And then the PhD is in English.
2: No, my PhD is in rhetoric and technical communication.
0: Holy cow! Okay, so you're, yeah. you're a your brain. And Once in a while. And so was this all? Was this all done with an eye on teaching? Like, did you know that you wanted to ultimately teach, or were you thinking I'm going to be a writer, or like, how, what, what was your conception of yourself as you went through all these various levels?
2: I had no real plan. I got my master's degree, and then I took some time off and worked for the University of Nebraska in their college of engineering doing communication and like creating recruitment materials, internal communications, that sort of thing. And finally I realized that I was tired of the way the faculty would talk to me like I was an idiot and I thought, wow, I could do what they do, whatever. And so I decided to get my PhD and so there was a pause of like I think three or four years between degrees and I still didn't know what my plan was. I just
0: knew well, so, that. Okay, and so this, but I want to cool stop you. Here I think this is so normal, and it doesn't get talked about all that much. But like you think, like whenever somebody says, or I think the general kind of conception of, of advanced degrees is that you're getting advanced degrees because you finally have you know zeroed in on exactly what you want to do, and you know it with uh-huh. specificity. And so that's why you're going back to school to get your master's or to get your PhD. But it also, you know, in my experience with people I know, or the way that I felt when I got my master's. I mean, I guess I did know I wanted to be a writer, but I felt like there's less total understanding uh, or even commitment to to one particular track when people are in their master's degree. I felt like I was kind of hiding out in a way, mm-hmm. um, just trying, oh, to, absolutely. just trying to work creatively, but also trying to just kind of sort myself out. You know, I was just trying to, yeah. I was trying to figure out who the hell I was.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely what I was doing. For me, school has always been a haven from <laughs> growing up right. or you know, figuring out what I want to do next. I knew that I was tired of working 60 or 70 hours a week in an office. The job was good, but the pay wasn't great. I hated how these engineers talked to me just because they had doctor in front of their name. And I just thought, you're not better than me. You're not smarter than me. And that frustrated me.
0: That frustrates the hell out of me is that uh, if you have the word doctor in front of your name, it confers a sort of like total legitimacy on you in our culture. And like... Yeah, not entirely without reason. I mean, I get it. You're educated and you've you've achieved and you've done something with your life and, you know, or you can you know medicine and you can heal people, but it I feel like, I don't know, I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about that. I feel like that's sort of bullshit, you know, like there are different like some doctors are really really good, but just there are a lot of ones who are, who aren't that good and yet they get the same level of respect, you know, basic respect because they're a doctor, you know.
2: Absolutely. It's frustrating and you know the reality is that I've worked a very long time on my degree and I you know I know a few things about what I do and I did work hard during my graduate program I slacked off a little bit but you know I like to pretend I slacked off but I worked my ass off and so I don't mind I don't make anyone call me doctor I don't refer to myself as doctor unless um, someone's being a dick and I, I know my students I don't even have them call me Dr. Gay um, I'll,
0: I'll call you doctor if you want I mean it's no that's okay
2: <laughs> no not at all I never ever use it because that would be gross but yeah. I um, you know I, I think on the one hand yes you sort of deserve respect but do you deserve respect just because you went to school forever no right. I think respect has to be earned in other ways and people are so pretentious with it whenever I see someone sort of acting crazy about having a PhD and just like please get a grant you know we make like no money and we're never going to make any money so all you have is the title right and that's not very much it's ridiculous our culture is an odd culture
0: so you know in terms of creative writing you know and how you started to focus on that and like you know the literary part of it i mean because you're teaching technical writing and you got your phd in that correct Yeah. Am I remembering? I mean, like, I'm just I'm just curious, like, how you? I mean, were you always interested in working creatively, or is this something that sort of evolved out of your studies?
2: No, not at all. I've been writing since I was four, writing stories. I would love to write full time, so I would love to just find a sugar daddy and get married and not have to work. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, writing is work, but yeah, I have a job because I have bills. Um, I love teaching, but. Yes. If someone came along and was like, you never have to work again, I would be totally fine with that. So I, I just love writing. And I got my PhD in technical communication because I knew that it paid better.
0: <laughs> right. Well, oh, see, there's, a, there's, a, there's yeah. a very shrewd, practical consideration that not like most creative people right. or most creative writers would probably not. That's a calculation that I probably would not have made.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think that, um, first of all, I have too many student moms to sit around having fantasies about the writing life and what the writing life should look like. I need a real job. And I also knew what the market, the market is saturated with people with PhDs in literature. So I I just think you'd have to be insane to get a PhD in literature at this point, or you really love it. And so I decided to get my PhD in something that would be very marketable and to be able to do both. And so I kind of slid into teaching creative writing here. Um, yeah, how did, get, how did you
0: get that job? I mean, like, was it a, was it a pain in the ass? Like, you get your PhD and you think that they're like the doors are going to fling wide open after <laughs> all <laughs> that school, and it just doesn't happen that way.
2: Not really. No, I applied to 45 jobs, 45 to, or 50. I can't what right between there. It was a lot. I um, just decided to blanket the market and see what would happen, and so I got a lot of interviews and went to MLA and interviewed and. Did some campus visits and then I took the job here, and it was happily ever after.
0: (laughs) And what city? What city are you in? Forgive me for not knowing.
2: Uh, Oh, don't worry, no one does. I'm in Charleston, Illinois.
0: Okay, and that's what part of the state? I guess the eastern part. I mean, but like
2: central eastern Illinois.
0: Okay, so you're kind of near Indiana. That's my uh, that's my home turf. Oh
2: yeah, I'm super close to Indiana. I go to Indianapolis all the time, and I'm about. 35 miles from
0: Terre Haute. Terre Haute, man. God, I have memories of Terre Haute. I went to, uh, yeah. when I was in high school, I had to go to, you know what Boys State is? Do you know what that is? Do they do that in other states? Mm-hmm. It was like this thing where like, you know, it's like a leadership seminar and they send like a you know a few kids from every high school class and I had to spend a week one summer in Terre Haute and it was like completely miserable and I remember leaving early, um, but it's just, you know, I don't know, it's, it's old memories. Um,
2: yes. Sarah Hope's an interesting place. <laughs> it is an interesting
0: place. Home of Larry, you know, Larry Bird. I'm a big Larry Bird fan, you know, basketball fan. But, um, yep. anyhow, so you, uh, do you have, as a writer, I'm curious, like, do you have real hope that you're going to be able to just write at some point? Like, do you think writing literary fiction and nonfiction and poetry, that do you, do you think to yourself, I can do this? I'm going to find a way. There's going to be a readership big enough to support me. or Or do you look at it more mathematically and say, well, the odds are very slim, but I love doing this and I've got a job that can sustain me. So I'm just going to keep going.
2: I'm a realist. Yeah. Um, I do think that there may come a day when I can write full time, but I certainly don't think it's going to happen alone. I think when you look at most of the people who write full time, they are in a relationship where they can share the household expenses. Yeah. Uh, it. Is it going to happen? I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't close the door on that possibility, but I also enjoy what I do. I enjoy teaching. I would love to live in a place that wasn't terrible, but I have a job. And for people in my field, that's a small miracle, and I don't... I think that there are all kinds of ways to be a writer, and I don't have any sort of weird fantasies about writing all day and not having to go somewhere. As far as jobs go, you really can't get much better. It's a lot of work, but it's a lot of work on my terms. So I love that. I came to work at 1 o'clock today. Yeah. That was fantastic.
0: Yeah, I mean, teaching, as far as, like, jobs that have, um, you know, like a nice uh, symbiosis with the writing life, I think teaching is as, probably as close to uh, perfect as you can get because you have some freedom and some flexibility. and
2: yeah. Absolutely. And you have the time off. Like, I wrote my first novel over the summer, and I had the time to do that and I would never have the time to do that in a nine to five job No, and I'd never have this kind of time off. And we like, this is the last week of classes and then I'll have three, four weeks off. It's really fantastic.
0: Yeah. You have a little breathing room. You need like, you know, you can, yeah. you know it's not like constant. I, I feel like I have friends who work these like really like high octane corporate jobs and they do really, really well. But these mm-hmm. com- these companies basically own them, like they own, absolutely, you know, ninety five percent of their lives and their time, and uh, you know, it's like they're, it's not necessarily a bad thing because they're, you know, they're making great money and they have security and stuff like that. But it's at the same time, you know, I think about it from my own perspective, and I think I would start to feel suffocated.
2: Absolutely, I've had traditional jobs. I used to work for a student loan company before I worked for the University of Nebraska. I've worked the crazy hours, and I, you know, what is my happiness worth? I love to write. And so I'm going to always have a job, if the universe is willing, that allows me to write without having to feel like I'm sacrificing some other part of myself. So it's, you know, I'm in an ideal situation, minus the geography of this place, which is not ideal, but that's okay.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and you know, before I let you go, because we're getting close uh, to the hour here, I wanted to at least ask you um, about Haiti a little bit. Like, have you been there? Have you have you traveled to Haiti? And then also uh, with respect to the earthquake, like, did you have family down there or anything?
2: Yeah, my, um, my family is still definitely very much in the country. My parents split their time between the United States and Port-au-Prince. My dad has a company there. My brother works for him. Um, I have been to Haiti many times. Haiti is wonderful. It's difficult. It's everything you might imagine, but it's also a hundred times better than you would ever get the impression of based on how the media likes to portray Haiti. It's nothing like that, and it's exactly like that. It just depends on where you go and when you go. But it's also the most beautiful place you'll ever see, and the most beautiful beaches. It's gorgeous, and the great thing about their beaches is that they're not all sullied up by tourists, and that's also the sad thing. So, Haiti is a land of contradictions, but the best music in the world, the best food in the world, the most vibrant art, I go on. It's wonderful. Uh, the earthquake was rough, I think, for everyone. My family was certainly far luckier than most. My great-aunt and uncle died, which was terrible, and they were in their 80s, but they died together. Well, uh, the a... children of... Oh,
0: uh, what? I was going to say, like, you know, at least there's that comfort.
2: Yes, it's a small comfort, but there is that, and they're very much missed. And then um, the children of some people who worked for my parents, two of their three children died and the children were under the age of 15, and that's heartbreaking. And there's nothing that makes that okay, but we are definitely, my family was definitely the lucky ones. My parents' apartment building was damaged, but they were able to, the apartment building was quickly repaired, and there were so many people who didn't have the resources to rebuild, who are still living in tent cities, So whenever people ask how my family's doing, I'm like, my family's fine. How is everyone else's family? I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are still displaced. Right. And there's cholera, and there's the um, safety of women that's a real problem in these tent cities. There's the lawlessness. There's the um, cleanup that's taking a really slow... It's just the progress has been very slow. There's a bottleneck in terms of the aid coming into the country that's being controlled by who knows. It's There's a lot going on. So the country is still struggling to rebuild. But I think, like most Haitians, that it will be rebuilt.
0: Yeah, yeah, eventually. And how often do you get down there?
2: I don't go there very often anymore. It's mm-hmm. just too much. I struggle with going down there I'm going to try and go again
0: well it's just it's too, it's too emo- like emotionally overwhelming is that I, mean-
2: I find it overwhelming and, and this is just you know means of a pussy but to me it's hard to go there and be comfortable and see so many other people that are not comfortable and that have never been comfortable and never will be comfortable I struggle with that and I think a lot of patients do and I have the luxury of opting out of it, and that's you know it, it, I have the luxury it's a luxury to opt out of it. There are so many people that can't choose not to sort of see some of the issues there here in the United States. These problems exist, but you don't see them as much yeah they definitely we hide our problems a lot better than I think countries in the third world hide their problems
0: right and that's um, the, the thing th- you're in a third world country and like you just you're exposed to it constantly and Correct. Uh, you know, it sounds – I don't want to sound awful or insensitive, but it's exhausting. Uh,
2: That's exactly what it is. It's exhausting. And, like, my my parents, my dad especially, he works there and he comes home on the weekends here in the United States. And he, it's exhausting to be there. Even when you have a relatively comfortable life, everything is a struggle. Like, getting from the airport is a pain in the ass. Going to the store is a pain in the ass. Like, there's just nothing that ever works smoothly, and it's the same way anywhere outside of the United States. Sort of, you know, Europe. It, it's just the way it is, and I don't mind that. I don't mind the struggle, but it's just sometimes it's just very emotionally draining to sort of be there. But I love being there too. So it's it's a struggle for me. Like, I, it's a real struggle, and I really want to go back, and I will. Um, I'm going to try and go this summer. I've been really busy.
0: <laughs> sure, and in your, in your book well, clearly, and yeah. your book it, your book addresses it. I mean, you've written about it, so clearly, it's really meaningful to you.
2: Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm very proud to be a Haitian. I very much love the country. I very ha- have a lot of high hopes for the country. As sort of not bitter, but as I see the country and the struggles it's going through, and I wish that the world knew more about it and cared more about it, and not just when it's convenient, like when there's a crisis. And then all of a sudden, everyone's talking about Haiti. I mean, has anyone said the word Haiti in the past year? Sean, Probably not.
0: Sean Penn. He's like the only one. He's out there. Uh, on I saw him on Piers Morgan yeah. or something. You know, but.
2: Sean Penn is crazy. He is ride or die with his tensity. He is just... Yeah. You know, I'll give it to him. He decided to go down there and try and do some good, and he's doing some good. And you know, half off.
0: Well, that's the thing. I, I mean, that's, are... a, that's what I always say is that, like, you know, I mean, it's just, it's easy to criticize, but and it's easy to mock or whatever. But it's like, for God's Correct. sake, he's living. He's living in a tent, and he's he's down there, and it's like at least he's trying to do something instead of just like Correct. pontificating about it or something. You know.
2: Absolutely. There's some flaws with with what Sean Penn is doing, but I'm not going to get on the sort of band of haters of what he's doing because he's put his money where his mouth is. And unlike a lot of these people that start these charitable efforts down in Haiti, he actually spends a fair amount of time in the country. There was a period where I think he was there for four or five months straight. And he's not just there living in a house on the hill. He's in the tent city with the people trying to create some kind of change. And because he's doing it privately, he's not getting hemmed up with a lot of the bottleneck that's happening. So uh, yeah, it's easy to paint targets on Sean Penn and you know, ha ha. Oh, there's the white American actor. Uh, you know what? What are you
0: doing? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I, that's what he, I thought about in, with, yeah. Katrina, with Katrina too. He like, you know, you rent a boat and you go down into it. I mean, shit, the, like the hat's off. That's what I think.
2: Exactly. He's a, I think he's an interesting person. I think he has complex motivations but I also think that he does a lot more than most people do. And I don't care what his motives are. He's doing it. Right. So.
0: Right. So, well, anyway, this has been really fascinating. It's it's so good to actually hear your voice because I've been seeing your name and your, like, little avatar photo on my computer screen uh, just, <laughs> like, just about everywhere I go for, you know, the past couple of years. And uh, I don't know. I wish you all the best with the book. I, I, I think that uh, with your... You know, with your prolificness, is that a word? Prolificness? It is now. Uh, it is now, yeah. I think that you're, uh, I, you know, I'm expecting more and more books, and I, I anticipate good things for you. So I wish you the best. Oh,
2: thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed
0: this. All right, Roxanne. Take care. You too,
2: bud.
0: All right, folks. There you have it. That's Roxanne Gay. Go get her book, Ayiti, available now from Artistically Declined Press, and check out uh, her website. It's roxannegay.com. Uh, but be careful, Roxanne is spelled R-O-X-A-N-E, and Gay is spelled G-A-Y. RoxanneGay.com, she's on Twitter too, her handle is at RGay, and she has a Facebook presence as well. This show has a website, it's OtherPeoplePod.com, it has a Twitter feed, at OtherPeoplePod, I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. the show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at OtherPeoplePod.com. Don't forget to check out the nervousbreakdown.com too. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. Is, uh, there's a ton of great writing there. There's a lot of good authors doing good stuff. You can follow it on Twitter at TNB and you can find it on the Facebook as well. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the great music. Check out KillRockstars.com. Uh, other closing thoughts? I'll try to be quick. There's a dog barking outside. Uh, maybe you can hear him. It's sort of annoying. My neighbors leave this dog outside and he just barks constantly in sort of a staccato fashion, just over and over again. I'm not sure at what. Uh, he doesn't do it all the time, but he does do it sometimes. Uh, but ultimately, uh, as annoyed as, I'm, you know, as I might be, I can't get mad about it because it's a dog. I have a hard time getting mad about stuff like that. I'm always like, oh, you know, it's just a dog. Uh, and it's kind of similar uh, when someone's having a party and it's loud and it's like a neighbor of mine and there's music and uh, it's late or whatever. I can't complain. I have a hard time complaining, even though uh, maybe I should, but I never will, you know? And and the reason is, is because uh, I used to hate those kinds of people when I was a kid, you know, some sort of like juvenile thing, uh, you know, like the people who wouldn't let you walk on their lawn, like those people, or the people, uh, you know, who would call the cops on people. Who does that? You know, let people have a party, for God's sake. Life is short. It's Friday night. It's summertime, whatever it is. And uh, I know that sometimes too much noise is inappropriate. I'm not trying to be like you know, complete absolutist about it. If you're the kind of person who does call the cops, when someone's like having like a crazy party at 3. AM it's just, you know, me personally, I have a really hard time calling the cops on anyone. uh, And I'm not good at confrontation either. I I just tend to let it go. And I just let the noise happen. Uh, I say, let the children have their rock and roll. That's my opinion. And that's what I'll close with. Uh, I'll close with this Go listen to some music Why not do that Listen to some new music Or listen to some old music From your childhood That you used to really like But you've kind of Forgotten about And you haven't heard In a long time Uh, Enjoy that Go do that I think if you listen To music every day uh, In some fashion At at a decent volume It's probably uh, The same Or even better Than drinking a kombucha tea I don't even You know What the fuck is kombucha tea I have no idea All right, everybody I'm going to bed I'm going to sleep it off. Back again soon with another conversation digitized and designed to fit inside your brain. Take a deep breath. Do it. Do it right now. <laughs>